And I remember that night just talking to my mom and being like, yo, um, kind of like, why, why are we doing this? You know, like, why are human beings like killing each other? Why are they shooting each other? And I remember just being like, you know, her unable to like really answer that. And after a while, I remember she said to me, she was like, you know, well, you got to believe that you can change the world um, if, if that's something that's important to you. That brings you authentic stories and lived experience from unique individuals. I'm your host, Kev, and I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Joining me today is Dr. Kirk J. James, who is a clinical assistant professor at NYU Silver. Jay was born in Montego Bay, Jamaica, during a period of political and social unrest. He will ultimately migrate to the United States at 10 years old with his mother in search of a better life. In 2013, Jay completed a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policies and Practice, titled The Invisible Epidemic, Educating Social Work Students Towards Holistic Practice in a Period of Mass Incarceration. As a professor at NYU, he utilized his firsthand knowledge and research to educate, train, and work with governments, community-based organizations, social workers, and advocates with social justice agenda through America, the Caribbean, and Africa. Jay believes education is our greatest tool for liberation and social justice. In this episode, we're going to share some unique rooms that social workers find themselves in and a journey of entering the profession. So first and foremost, thank you for being here. How are you feeling today? Yo, thank you, man. I feel blessed. I'm happy to be here. Really proud of you for doing what you do, you know, and just happy to share the energy, my brother. Yeah, for sure. And um, it's just crazy because like to me, it's like full circle you know, being a student in your own um, your class and also during the pandemic, which was kind of crazy. Yeah, and at the start of it. Yeah, <laughs> for real. How how was that yeah. for you, like, as a professor? Because sometimes, you know, as a student, I didn't yeah. really ask that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's real, because I, I feel like, you know, people don't really think about, like, professors as human beings, you know, mm-hmm. and I try to really kind of disrupt that narrative, you know, that we're all, like, human beings engaging in this process and students I know are struggling. And we're also struggling, you know. So for me, the first thought was like, damn, yo, we are going through, you know, something that none of us have gone through before in this space. And I was really proud of that class in particular because I feel we had really done a lot of, like, human work with each other when we were in person. So when we moved online, it felt like we were able to hold a space still really dope. And just like really show up and have a lot of compassion for each other, but yeah, it's real and it still continues to be real, you know. Yeah, for sure. But um, you know, as a student, um, being in your class, I think you did a wonderful job of like trying to like normalize things and like you know bring that energy because I know like also doing remote for some, it's it could be exhausting having to sit yeah. behind a computer for hours and stuff like that. So. Um. Yeah, no, that was real, man. And, and it's still <laughs> real. You know, it's still, I tell students all the time, you know, this last semester was our first semester back in person. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell students, I'm like, yo, we're wearing masks in a classroom. And that's real. You know, we're trying to, you know, really get to know each other and have vulnerable conversations, yet we can't even see each other. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, we're experiencing so much harm in our lives. We're experiencing so much uncertainty. So I think sometimes just naming things and creating space to process, you know, is incredibly powerful. And I feel just really honored that, you know, students have really embraced that. You know, your class is really dope. And it feels like the classes afterwards have really showed up and, you know, been really human and vulnerable during this experience. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's dive in now. Can you you share um, what it was like for you growing up in Jamaica? Yeah. So first of all, like if you've ever been to Jamaica before, Jamaica is like incredibly beautiful. It's one of those places that, (laughs) you know, I I don't want to make light of slavery, bro, (laughs) but like, yo, I'm like 
you know, we could have got dropped off in a lot of places. <laughs> and I'm like, yo, thank you. You know, because Jamaica is really a beautiful place. And at the same time, like I grew up in an era where, you know, to give some backdrop, right? Because I feel like we often don't think, it, we mean in Americans, we don't think internationally and globally mm-hmm. when we talk about like change, when we talk about like anti-oppressive work. Um, even with what's happening in Ukraine right now, very few of us are really thinking about how that's going to impact the world globally, mm-hmm. um, especially places like Africa and the Caribbean that gets like so much grain from this region. Um, so for me, growing up in Jamaica, we were really impacted by American foreign policy. Um, and really because Jamaica was trying to create a different political system. And, and the prime minister at the time, Michael Manley, was moving the country towards democratic socialism, uh, which was a way, you know, to create, at least he believed, to create greater equity in the country. And what the United States saw was an alignment that was moving closer to Cuba. Mm-hmm. And this was the height of the Cold War. And what the U.S. did through policy and other means was to really disrupt the economy. And, and that really created political instability. And, and all of a sudden, you know, we had a country that was politically unstable. Uh, we had food shortages and everyone had guns, right? Like everyone had guns. Mm-hmm. So I remember coming out of the house as a kid and just like, you know, everyone had a machine gun over their back. And, you know, like people were getting shot, there'd be bodies. And I just moved to Kingston. I was about like five years old when I moved to Kingston to live with my mom. Mm. And that was crazy. You know, like I was living in a war zone and I didn't, it was very normalized for me. I didn't realize that, you know, all these things we talk about, trauma, ACEs, I was living these things and didn't have like words or recognition. Um, But it really engendered with me from an early age, this idea of like, yo, what are we doing? (laughs) You know, like as human beings, like how are we creating a world that is safe? How are we creating a world that is equitable? Um, And, you know, ultimately, like you said, we were able to move to the U.S. and, you know, in hopes of a better life, right? But at the time, coming to the U.S. in in the 80s, early 90s was, you know, the period we would call like the war on drugs, which was really like a war on black men. So coming from a society that was at war to another society that was at war, and a war specifically with people that look like me. And, you know, like ultimately feeling like really disconnected from the educational system, ultimately dropping out of school, um, you know, but would get a GED and go to college and, and really kind of start to create a life that I thought was aligned for me. Um, and what I wanted to do, but then I'd be arrested at 18 and charged on the Rockefeller drug laws. So, you know, this was, whereas to put this in perspective, 18, I was 1994, 1994 was the height of, you know, mass incarceration, a war on drugs, um, 2 million people, over 2 million people incarcerated, almost 10 million under some type of community supervision, one in three black men incarcerated, 40 of us in the back of the bus, you know, all, all the things that we like, we hear and know, but, you know, I felt like I was living it. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, I went from Jamaica to the U.S., but, you know what I mean? So, like, really, just always feeling like I've been living in a period of war. Mm, yeah, that's, that's, that's deep right there. And, and as far as, like, your parents, like, how did they, yeah. like, kind of, like, spoke to you during those times and prepare you for, like, the environment that you was in? Yeah. Um, so, my mom, my mom had me really young. And, you know, I think my mom, you know, bless her, uh, was just really trying to survive. And there is, you know, I'm finishing a book, really, on some of my experiences with mass incarceration. I share this story. And I remember after we were living in Kingston, and I remember, like, where we were living in, I'm shot up. And I remember we were hiding in the closet for, like, hours, you know, like, just not knowing what was going down. And then I remember that night, like, talking to my mom. And I was probably, like, five or six. But, you know, when you're young, you remember some of those um, conversations. And I remember that night just talking to my mom and being like, yo, um, kind of like, why, why are we doing this? You know, like, why are human beings, like, killing each other? Why are they shooting each other? And I remember just being, like, you know, her unable to, like, really answer that. And after a while, I remember she said to me, she's like, you know, well, you got to believe that you can change the world um, if, if that's something that's important to you. 
And so, you know, my mom, unbeknownst to her at that point, like really planted the seed that would ultimately not only help me to survive, you know, periods of harm, but also help me to always believe that there was something else possible. Wow. I love that part. <laughs> Did you feel like that, that one phrase or what she kind of like embedded in you, like was part of the reason why you wanted to become a social worker or was it something else? Yeah, no. So I, that was part of it, right? I think I've always been, I, I've never wanted to be a social worker, really, honest with you. I've always <laughs> been oriented. <laughs> I've been a hundred with you, right? Like, I've always been oriented towards, like, doing something that had a positive impact in the world. And, you know, after being arrested at 18, I, I wanted to be an attorney, really, honestly, before that. Um, and, you know, I was studying, like, law. I was studying juvenile delinquency, which was, it was called at that time. So I really saw the law as, you know, a way to create change. And that's where I thought I was headed. And then when I got arrested at 18, you know, I even remember um, I got arrested by the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And I remember when I was getting processed and the guy asked me, he said, you know, why are you here? And I was just like, yo, I don't know, man. And he, you know, began to ask me questions of who I you know, who I am and what I wanted to do. And I was like, yeah, I'm in school and I want to be a lawyer. Mm. And I remember him saying to me, and I never forgot this, he, he looked at me and said, you know, you can't be a lawyer with a felony. Bro, I, I, I had just gotten locked up. You know, mm. this was day one. And I remember him just saying that, watch that, right? Like, you can't be a lawyer with a felony. And obviously, you know, he was psychic. He knew the system. He knew that, you know, most black men get locked up. You know, you're going down. Um, which I did. So when, when I was ultimately convicted at 19 and sentenced to seven years to life, um, you know, like my dream of becoming an attorney went out the window. Mm -hmm. But also, I, I really lost faith in the law, if I'm being 100 with you. Like, I was on Rikers for six months without bail. Uh, I went through the system. I saw the inhumanity of the system. I saw, you know, like not even being seen, right? Like I was a number. No one saw me. No one, even at 18 years old, cared why I was being charged on the Rockefeller drug laws as a drug kingpin, right? So I, I really saw that, you know, the law was a farce. And, you know, it was you know, made up by white men for white men to continue the perpetuation of white supremacy. And, you know, the education that I would receive in prison would further reinforce that for me and, and further also, like, instigate for me like wanting to create change because the people that like you know, loved me and supported me and nurtured me through those nine years of incarceration, many of those people will never get out of jail. You know, many of those people will die and many of those people have gotten home and, and gone back, you know, just trapped in this perpetual cycle. So, you know, in many ways, like my moving to be a social worker um, was really because I saw it as a profession that spoke to the values that I had. Mm. Um, and spoke to the actions that I had. And obviously getting involved in was a totally different story, right? Like, yo, why y'all ain't living this? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I ultimately came to social work once released because, again, it was a profession that spoke to, you know, the values of change that I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, for sure. So I, I like the part that you mentioned how, like, when you had got convicted and the dude was pretty much telling, like, hey, you know, you can't be a lawyer and how like you, you know, um, you know, kind of like lost hope and, you know, in that field. And to me personally, the reason I said that, because I think everything happened for a reason, because if you didn't really yeah. have gone through those phases, you would have been a social worker and doing the amazing work that you're doing now. You know, so sometimes a lot of uh, our problems are like blessing in disguise, you know, for real. For real, bro. I mean, not only that, but, you know, I feel so much of who I am as a human being and how I show up in this work is because of everything that happened to me, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think like if I didn't have those experiences, I wouldn't be as passionate. I wouldn't have the the same level of understanding, you know, and, and like just, you know, being like non-compromisable in this work. Yeah, for sure. Um, what are some challenges that you experienced early on when you were like entering the field of social work? Yeah, um, so a lot, right? <laughs> <Because> <laughs> a lot. So I, I think you know, personally, I was still. Uh, I when I came home, came home from prison, I just went hard. You know, I was working full time. I was going to school full time. 
as a father full time, you know, um, life was full time. And <laughs> yo, so, you know, a lot of things were happening. And, and I don't feel that I really understood the trauma. Like everything that I spoke about earlier growing up in Jamaica, going to prison, it, it's almost matter of fact, right? Like I'm, I'm talking about these things like, you know, I went to the store, but it wasn't, you know, this was like, you're really a lot of trauma. And, you know, I've been incarcerated since 18. So there was just like a lot of personal work that, um, that really needed to happen. There was a lot of healing that needed to happen. Um, so I'm balancing all of that stuff. And then I'm, I'm entering a profession where, or I'm entering the academic space where it's like, yo, it's me, right? There's very few black men in the space. Um, you know, I'm, it, the imposter syndrome, do I belong here? And, and oftentimes when these conversations around people in jails or, and prisons are being discussed, even in, in professions with social justice values, it's really, you know, can I curse here? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's really fucked up. You know, it's <laughs> like, yo, they're talking about us like we're animals, you know? Um, so that was really messed up and, and feeling like I had to balance all of these things. And it wasn't a safe space, you know, like it wasn't a brave space either. So I had to balance like what was happening in my personal life. And then I got to show up in this space and, and also like, yo, can we be accountable? You know, can we be accountable to our values? So coming into the profession, it always felt like that was, you know, a challenge for me, like doing my own personal work and all asking for professional accountability. And, you know, and, and being a black man who's also not seen or, or put in boxes and not valued, you know, and are always having to legitimize why I'm here. Mm. So, you know, it, there, there's so many layers to this work. When I think about, you know, blessings to, you know, folks who have made intersectionality, um, Kimberly Crenshaw and those folks, you know, it's, it's really, it's such a powerful word because I feel I was having so many intersectional experiences when I came into social work and I continue to still have, you know, I remember somebody said the other day, it's like, I've never just been able to go to school, mm. you know, as a black person, I've never been able to just go to school. And that's real. Like, you know, I've never just been able to show up and say, I'm going to work or I'm going to school. You know, I'm always balancing, you know, like whether it's my racial identity, whether it's my gender identity, whether it's, um, you know, like, historical trauma, collective trauma, racial profile. And, you know, there's just always this um, weight that is being carried while we navigate, you know, these spaces. Yeah, for sure. And I'd like to go back to, like, um, you being incarcerated, right? Um, mm -hmm. you mentioned like, um, you kind of being frustrated a little bit and, um, you know, you being hit hard, but at the moment, like, what were like some other thoughts and feelings that were, that, that you were experiencing? Did you flex on the, you know, come out the time that you came out? Like, what do you mean? When I came home? Yeah. Like, cause you mentioned like, oh, like yeah. Cause you mentioned yeah. like, yeah, you know, being there for some time, but did you, did you feel like at the moment, like you was going to come out? during that year that you came home or you thought you was going to be a little bit longer? Like how, how was that process yeah. for you? Okay. So let me take you back. Right. So when I got locked up, I got sentenced to seven years to life, which meant that I, and which meant that my minimum sentence was seven years. And in theory, I could be in jail for life. So that was really scary. Right. Because, yo, know, I could theory, I had a life sentence, you know, like, and, I didn't know when I was going to come out. So I had to live with that anxiety and know that anything that like I did or didn't do impacted my ability to go home. So I always had that tension from day one being in jail. Like I always had to be like, you're really careful of how I move, what I got involved in, what I didn't do. Mm -hmm. And even with all that, bro, it was still crazy because then like talk about a lot of these laws that, you know, we talk about arbitrarily. So I got locked up in 94. So then a lot of people know about the 94 crime bill. And the 94 crime bill just really made, um, you know, policing for folks like us, you know, just a real, a real, real thing. But then it also took away a lot of programs in jails and prisons. So, you know, colleges got taken out of jails, right? So like, uh, and prisons. So I go upstate 
and there's no colleges and I have a life sentence and I'm 19 years old. So I'm in all these adolescent, I'm in adolescent prisons. I'm in Kaksaki, you know, like what Biggie, Biggie's rapping about, you know, where the hand skills are real ill, you know? So like I'm in places where it's like it's adolescent doing maximum time. And so to put that in perspective, you already got, you know, these young cats that come from like histories of trauma, Spotsburg, um, juvenile homes, right? So they're, they're, all they know is like trauma and violence. And then now they're hopeless because they have, you know, maximum sentences, meaning they got over five years. So, you know, these are the spaces I got to survive. And then, you know, the COs are constantly instigating warfare amongst us because as long as we're divided, you know, they can control. So, you know, I'm navigating like these spaces. I go from Kaksaki, I go to Green, and Green is the adolescent maximum security prison. And, and again, these are probably two of the most violent prisons in the world at this time. You know, their statistics, I would bet that they're, they're definitely the most violent prisons in New York State during this time. Um, but I would bet that they're probably two of the most violent prisons in the world at this time. So I go from Green to Kaksaki, and, and it's this constant navigation of like day in and day out, like survival, um, not knowing what's going to happen. And, and trying to figure out how I'm going to like be okay to ultimately one day possibly get out. So I'm navigating, this is my daily, I'm navigating this one a daily. And then in 1996, the immigration laws get changed and I'm ordered deported because again, I'm born in Jamaica, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't have citizenship, so I'm ordered deported. Um, so 1997, I'm ordered deported. They change the laws and allow me to go to the parole board. And this is where it gets crazy, Kevin. They change the laws and allow me to go to a parole board um, for early deportation. So that feels crazy because mm-hmm. it's like, yo, I'm in jail. I got a life sentence. But they're like, yo, all right, we're going to deport you and get you out of jail. So, like, obviously, I don't want to be deported. But at the same time, I don't want to be in jail. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so it's like this tension. But anyway, I go to a parole board and they deny me. So I get denied parole for deportation in 1997. I get denied parole for deportation in 1999, and I get denied for parole for deportation in 2001. Mm. So in them denying me all these years, what actually happens is I learn immigration law. I start to fight my immigration case. There's a case that thankfully goes to the Supreme Court, um, St. Cyr versus INS, and wins because the 96 laws was made retroactive. So they wrote the 96 laws and say, for instance, if your dad got a, got like a freaking jump to turn file in 1980, they were coming for him now. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's how like this is these folks were. They, they wrote a law and they made it retroactive for people back in the days. So the Supreme Court ruled that the case can be held retroactive. Um, I was able to uh, put in an appeal and get a hearing, which I ultimately won in 2002. So even being in prison, like, yo, I've been fighting. You know, it's not even like people think like, yo, you're just in prison and you're chilling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I'm fighting for survival and I'm fighting for my freedom. Um, so by the time I got out, you know, like I was, yo, I was, you know, I, I knew I was ready. I was ready to go. You know, like I, I had faith in myself that I could learn things. I had faith in myself that, you know, I was going to fight. And I had faith in myself that we could win. Um, so, you know, like by the time I ultimately got out of prison, you know, I, I felt like I was really schooled for everything that I faced in this work. Mm, wow. And I like the piece that you mentioned about like, you know, people thinking that, you, you know, that you was in jail just chilling, but in reality it was like fighting. So like, that's crazy yeah. fighting in a system that like, you know, you don't really have all the resources that you need. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And I know, um, you know, back when I was in your class as a student, I remember you, um, you know, briefly mentioning you were um, planning on writing a book. Did you by any chance finish it or you still or Ooh, still in the works? Yeah. So it's it, it finished in, right? It's finished in. And so, like, just even put that in perspective, you know, really honestly <laughs> and really vulnerably, bro, I've been writing this book for, like, almost, so March, this Friday, March 25th was 19 years since I got out of prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've been writing this book probably for more than three quarters of that time. So I've been writing this book in some ways for like 15 years. 
And it's been the hardest thing I ever, I've ever done. And the reason is that it's like, yo, I've had to really face it. You know, like I've really had to show up and really sit with some of these things, you know, the harm of some of these things, um, you know, being arrested, being in, on Rikers when my daughter was born, mm. um, you know, thinking about the harm of these systems to my mother, thinking about the harm of these systems to myself, being away from my brothers, you know, the violence that I saw in those spaces. So, you know, it's like, this has been, it's not just writing, you know, like in, in many ways, I remember I, I was talking to an editor and I was just like, yo, I'm struggling. And she said to me, she's like, yo, but pause and, and really think about this for a second. She's like, you're writing about the worst time of your life. And it went on for nine years straight. You know, and I was just like, wow. You know, like, imagine, you know, us writing about, like, one thing that happened to us, right? And, and something really harmful happening to us and, and how challenging that could be. But imagine if that harmful thing happened for nine years and then came out on parole for three years. And, you know, like, just, and, and, and I was like, wow, I didn't think about it in that way. So, you know, there are times that I'm in a good flow writing and then there are times that, like, you know, I can't even look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just need to, like, really, I need to just breathe. And it's been so real. And to see it, um, you know, where it's at right now, it's almost finished. Um, you know, this is the closest I've ever been to, you know, finishing this project. I feel, you know, I feel like a catharsis, but I also <laughs> just, you know, but I also... Like, I'm like, damn, yo, this healing thing is so real, bro. And like, we all, you know, like, we think that it's just like, yeah, name it, name trauma. And then like, we're good, you know, and it's not, you know, I even, to put this in perspective, you know, I went to the chiropractor this week because every once in a while I know, like, you know, I talk a lot about trauma in our classes, right? And the body keeps score. And, you know, he did this, uh, there's this, like, uh, they can... I forgot what it's called, but they can actually do a stress score for your back, right? Mm-hmm. And, yo, he did a stress score in my back, and my stress score was, like, 604. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and, and to put it in perspective, he's like, yo, you know, if 200, we're concerned. You know, like, if something is in the 200, we're concerned. And he's like, yo, your stress score is 604. So, yo, the body keeps score, you know, like, when we're living under like the perpetuity of trauma created by white supremacy. You know, it's like, it's no post, it's day in, day out. And so writing this book, man, has just been like really real, but I'm excited for it because I feel that there's not a lot of, you know, we talk a lot about formerly incarcerated or incarcerated people. You know, there's Michelle Alexander, there's Miriam Cabas, you know, there's all these people. Um, and, you know, I'm appreciative of them, but, we're our voices, mm. you know, and there's not a lot of our voices. Um, and I feel really blessed to have had the experiences that I've had in that, you know, I did nine years in prison and I have degrees from Ivy League schools. And I'm a professor at NYU. So I feel really blessed to have the experiences and to be able to tell the story from like, yo, my perspective. And knowing that, you know, my story isn't just my story, like, right? Like, I, my story was at a time where so many people were having the same experiences. And especially, you know, as it relates to immigration, where so many folks who have had the experiences that I have, you know, get deported. So their stories don't get told. You know, their voices are lost. And, you know, there's a conspiracy of silence. So I feel, and, and that's another piece, if I'm being 100 with you, bro, I feel like there's a lot of weight to make sure that I honor people, you know, like I honor the voices of, you know, people that are trapped in these systems. And that can sometimes like really weigh me down, man. But, you know, I feel blessed to be able to share the story and, you know, God willing, it's coming soon. Yeah, for sure. And I can't wait to get my copy signed. <laughs> and... Always, definitely. And then and then have me back and we yeah, can talk about it. Yeah, for you know? sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, um and what you said earlier made me think about because I also had um Professor Pia on this um not too long ago. I think she came over so like dope. Yeah, two two She's weeks so ago. 
And, yeah, I saw it. I saw it. Yeah. yeah. And then one thing she did mention, like, she was just basically um saying to me, like, it's very essential for us to like really um have our voice being heard because a lot of times when you rethink really about policy and all these things that are like negative, usually like we are most impacted by them. You know what I mean? And like what you said made made me think about what she told me, and that's so true. So it's very important for you to yeah. like really um own the things that you are um going through and share yeah. it. You know, so that's what's up. Yeah, no. People closest to the problem are closest to the solutions, but furthest away from the resources, right? Mm. And and so yeah, like how are we, you know, moving in ways? My work is always collaborative, right? Knowing that I can never be an expert on somebody else's life. But if I show up and empower them and engender them and help them with resources, that's a win-win, you know? So for me, like in doing this work, I, I'm really, knowing how much light these issues have gotten in the last decade uh, is really dope because there was a while, you know, we wasn't talking about folks in jails and prisons in real ways. And at the same time, you know, you know I would love to see more formerly incarcerated people, voices out there. Um, you know, just sharing their stories. You know, Marlon Peterson's um, A Bird on Cage came out last year. Marlon's a comrade, a formerly incarcerated person. So really happy that his story's out. But there's so many other, more people, right? There's so many um, people who've been impacted by these systems that, you know, like need to tell their stories and, and really provide the unique perspectives, right? Because it's like my perspective as a black man isn't the perspective. Um, it's part of it. It's a lot of it, but there's so many other people who have experiences in these systems that need to share that in hopes that we can have better awareness and understanding to ultimately dismantle. Yeah, for sure. And as you continue to do the work, right? Um, what are some early experiences that you you kind of like went through um, as far as like entering the social work profession and the jobs that you yeah. work? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, <laughs> ooh, that that is a really real question, right? And I think for me, some of the first things were just really figuring out how I could be authentic in this space. You know, I think, you know, to get into these spaces, first of all, it's like, you know, the boys talk about the code switching. You know, like, I, I couldn't just show up and be like, yo, yeah, I just got out of prison. You know, like, <laughs> there, there, there almost has to be, you got to play this game a little bit. And that's real. I ain't going to sit here and lie and say I didn't play the game. You know, I think you got to play that game a little bit. But then for me, I knew, though, that ultimately, if I was going to exist in this space, I had to dismantle that game. And I had to make sure that I was my most authentic self. And that has been like an ongoing process because I feel... You know, the way I show up in this space is just as real as anything that I say in this space. So, you know, that was something that was always there for me. Um, and also, just to be really honest with you, like, yo, not being seen, you know, like not being seen in this work is real. Like, I feel that, you know, I've had to struggle to get positions, academic positions. And and because, like, yo, the work that I do isn't something that is is supported, you know, like we're not getting grants to do this work, you know, so I don't have the same value as, as people who are getting government grants. And, you know, there's no like authenticity in the profession around that stuff. So for instance, I, I think that my scholarship on my work, I'd put that against anybody, but I can't go to any university and get a job because these universities are looking for people that fit certain molds, people that are coming with certain types of funding. So, you know, in many ways, I've always been an outsider. And so almost be okay with that, you know, to be okay with that. Like, I'm not here to be professor of the year. I'm not here for any awards. I'm here to really, like, spark curiosity around these issues that leads to action. And knowing that so many of these uh, folks that are at these NYUs and these Columbias and these um, Pens, you know, these are folks that have access to spaces that I don't. And if I can, you know, make them curious and they can go back to their spaces and make them curious and, and start to, you know, move differently, start to act differently, that for me is the win. And I feel that, you know, to get to that point, you know, to get to the point of like, why am I really here um, has been in the process. But, you know, once I've gotten there, I feel like it's allowed me to really um, not take a lot of shit that I experienced in this profession personally. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, eventually, um, you know, you got into your educator role, right? Working at NYU as a professor. Like, how did you kind of get that position? Like, and what was like the first early experiences of working in a, you know, in a, a school that's predominantly white? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you a story that I've never shared out loud, right? Um, but I think it probably should be said. And so my my first academic position wasn't at NYU. My first academic position in many ways was at Penn and um, School of Social Policy and Practice. And I went to Penn for my doctorate. And while there, I had an opportunity to build a program, the um, Gold Ring Reentry Initiative. And if you go on their website right now, you'll still see the program. What you won't see is you won't see any mention of me. And I built that program by myself with the help of like really amazing students. And so my first foray into the academy was just like, again, this like really um, kind of invisibility, like you were okay to do certain things. And, you know, like we can discard you when we no longer feel there was value for you. So I built this program with the understanding that once I finished my doctorate, I would have the ability to continue to um, to run and develop this program. And part of building this program was the idea that we would evolve this program. And this program started as, again, a reentry initiative. And I wanted us to do more proactive work, feeling that, you know, as an institution, you know, we have so much resources and how can we be more proactive? What happened when I graduated was... Um, I ultimately was pushed out the position. You know, they'll probably tell a different story, but the reality was I was pushed out the position. I was replaced with um, with a former student, a white woman, and I ultimately left the University of Pennsylvania. So that was like, you know, my intro with the academy, just being like, whoa, you guys are really shady. You guys are really underhanded, and you talk a good game, but you really aren't about it. And after leaving Penn, I, I, that really enforced for me again, like how much more authentic I need to be in my relations with the institution. Um, and, you know, I've been able, like after going leaving Penn, I was able to really like, you know, see the landscape and I adjuncted at a lot of universities while building out a private practice. Um, I was able to work at Temple. I was able to work at Columbia. I was able to work at City College, York. I'm um, just really amazing institutions, but there was always this thing, right? Like of disposability, like you're good enough to do this, but you're always disposable. And that is always a feeling as a black man. I feel in the academy, I never really feel like truly valued. I never really feel truly honored. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's good to be like marketed, um, but it's not good to be like honored, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, in these spaces. So we're always marketed, but we're not really honored. I probably make a fraction of what my colleagues make um, salary-wise. So, you know, there's always this thing, again, like I think for me, it's like really honoring that this is a harmful space. You know, like I'm, I'm, I have no naivete that this, the academy is not a harmful space. And I often tell the students coming in, you know, especially students of color, and like this is an incredibly harmful space irrespective of what they say, it's an incredibly harmful space. So I say all that to say that for me, I've had to acknowledge that and honor that and also really ask of myself then again, why am I here? And it really relates to what I just said to you earlier is that I know this is a harmful space. I know this is a space that doesn't truly see me and honor me for the work that I do. Um, And at the same time, this is a space that affords me tremendous access and tremendous privilege to really do the work on a high level. And I've seen that, you know? So I've seen in the last 10 years of being in the academy, of being a social worker, how much these conversations have shifted. You know, how much are conversations around trauma grown as it relates to oppressed and marginalized peoples. And those are all things that I feel like I've played a role in. So, you know, like, I, I feel like, again, these systems are incredibly harmful, um, even for me as a professor at NYU. I constantly feel undervalued. I constantly feel, you know, that I'm doing work that other uh, faculty are not doing. You know, so it's like really honoring that, not honoring that, but knowing that's true, 
and also knowing that, you know, the impact and my aims and my goals and the things that I, I want to achieve are also possible. And knowing for me of where I come from and knowing that peoples are still struggling, I feel that I can take that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I can I can navigate this bullshit, you know, because this is bullshit or white supremacy. I'm going to have to navigate it wherever I'm at. I can navigate this knowing that, you know, I my aim is being achieved and that there is change happening. And whether it happens in my lifetime or not, that this, this conversation has evolved and, you know, something will have to happen. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, you know, having me, like myself looking on the outside, like it already felt refreshing to see um, a professor who looked like me in those spaces. Cause it definitely gave me, um, you know, that motivation. Also like, hey, like, you know, I could also be in, in spaces where like I may not be, um, you know, the the majority or whatever. So like you definitely opened my eyes a lot. Because um, when I was coming to NYU, I just had a this perception of like, okay, may this be one of me, or like, I may not even have black professors. Because I'm coming from a school, I'm coming from your college right now, Jamaica Queens, where like pretty much yeah. all your professors <laughs> is like Caribbean descent, Hispanic, yeah, you yeah. name it. So yeah. I'm just like, uh, I was in this, you know, this little small bubble, and then going to NYU, I'm like, oh, this is different, yeah. you know. So yeah. <laughs> Yo, so we we must have missed each other at York because I used to adjunct at York, and that's how I, I met Darrell, who connected me with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, small right, yeah, we missed but, each other. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's so real, and thank you for sharing that, though, because I have never had a black professor. I've never had a black male professor, I should say. Um, you know, never, never in my entire time in the academy, mm-hmm. and I feel for me. You know, that was always something like what you said was just like, how am I going to show up and how am I going to, you know, um, empower like other folks of color to show up in these spaces. And that's something that means a lot to me. You know, like it means a lot to me to feel that I can play a role in helping you own your voice in this space and own yourself in this space. And that is it for me. That's everything that, you know, and thank you for saying that, because for me, that's all I'm about. You know, like I know that if I show up and I allow for that, everything else will fall into place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, um, I know you have this initiative um, called um, NYU Silver Evolving Justin. Can you tell me more about yeah. that and how that started? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm always looking. One of my mentors always said to me, look for the gaps, you know, like where are, you know, the gaps. And I feel, you know, being in an academic space, we don't we're not comfortable having challenging conversations. We're not comfortable, even though we're safe, we're showing up to like, you know, the academy. It's really about like, yo, know, the banking system of education, just like transference of information, memorization type bullshit. So like the idea of like creating space that is actually critical, the idea of creating space that actually is accountable towards an action is something that is always important for me. So the idea of justice, right? Everyone loves to talk about justice and accountability. And I, I think it's bullshit. I think most of the people that like use those language and public safety, you're you're kind of like reinforcing white supremacy because I've never felt safe. I've never felt justice. And most people like me have never felt those things. So the idea of like um, you know, evolving justice is really like how can we create a conception of justice that is inclusive? That isn't for white men by white men. That isn't for people with money, power, and privilege. You know, but how do we create an idea of justice that is salient um, across the board that allows all people the ability to feel a part of that? All people to feel like they can self-actualize. And I know that sounds like hella audacious, but that's what I'm about. You know, I really feel that my strength is, you know, to create to help to facilitate, to co-create space that allows us to really engage in the conversations that we need to engage in to actually move us towards the actions we need to move towards. Yeah, for sure. And that's a perfect segue to my next question. Um, What are some projects that you have coming up for yourself or your community? Um, It could be like in any like general sense. Yeah. Um, So maybe... First thing I'll plug really quick is we're doing our Reimagine Justice, April 7th and 8th, and it's free. So, you know, like if you go on the NYU Reimagine Justice, there's like, um, 
if you Google like NYU Reimagine Justice, it should come up. Um, it's a free conference. Register. You know, I think would be dope for people to come and be a part of this conversation. Um, and I'm also like, I want people to, like just check for the book. Keep asking me questions. You know, the book is the book is my priority right now. You know, and I'm really looking to finish it up shortly and really make it not only, you know, what's interesting is I have no pictures. I have like maybe three or four pictures from when I was a baby. But while I was incarcerated, I took so many pictures and I captured so much of that experience. So I'm really seeing the book as this very, um, you know, like multimedia project. It's not just going to be a book. You know, there'll be like videos, there'll be like pictures, there'll be art. You know, this is a way of like, again, really honoring, you know, the totality of these stories and really understanding that um, teaching and learning can happen in a lot of different ways. So, you know, that is something that I'm really excited about because I feel I've always felt at my core that, you know, James Baldwin says this thing that an artist is always going to be at war with their society because you're kind of like provoking the society to greater consciousness. And I've always kind of like felt at my core that's who I am. I'm somebody that's like just really curious, but curious as to how we can like create a better world. So I see the project as like, um, and I don't know if I've mentioned the title of the book. So the title of the book is 94A6325, um, Coming of Age in the Era of Mass Incarceration. So 94A6325 was my um, DIN number. You know, my New York State prison ID number, 94 meaning the year, A meaning that I was processed at a maximum security prison, um, 6325 means that I was the 6,325th person to be processed at that maximum security prison, which was downstate. So, you know, like for me, this is a project that I want to really engage people in these issues in a really deep way, right? Not just like, yo, here's a story and the story was really fucked up, it was really traumatic. Um, but like, yo, how are we supporting people? How are we supporting families that are going through this? How are we creating spaces in schools that, you know, like that children can and you know, I think Miriam Cobb is someone told me just came out with a children's book around incarceration. So how are we creating because my my daughter was you know, born and, and spent the first nine years of her life without me. And these weren't conversations she could have at school. Um, these weren't conversations she could have with her friends. Um, how are, you know, like partners, how are partners being supported in these issues? How are mothers being supported in these issues? So I feel for me, I really want to just create an intersectional conversation that leads to action. You know, like me, it's like, you know, practice is my favorite word. It's not just like, you know, theory and talking but like yo how are we going to you know move these things to action so this is like really my my biggest thing that i've ever worked on and it's like bringing the book to completion but then also really creating um various ways of engagement um for people around this issue yeah for sure thank you for that love it love it love it (laughs) um lastly what is one piece of advice that you can give to the audience out there that are tuning in right now, words of encouragement, spoken words, anything that you feel like they need to hear at this given time? Yeah, I mean, I just feel like, yo, knowing who you are and knowing the work that you do, I want to say to, like, our peoples, man, like, yo, we, we got to, like, just make sure we're taking care of ourselves. I think, you know, I think a lot about, like, Audrey Lord and, you know, self-care being an act of political resistance. I think we all want to see change in the world, and it's so important that, you know, like we show up and take care of ourselves. The last two years for me, you know, I've seen my brother. My brother is 28, 29 years old, and he's brilliant. He has an MD from Duke, and he has an MPH from Columbia, um, but is now also struggling with, like, serious mental health for the last two years. And, you know, a big part of that is, like, yo, what it feels like to be a black man um, navigating this world, what it feels like to be a black man navigating academic spaces. And and I think like, yo, we talk about trauma a lot and we talk about healing a lot. But, you know, it's like sometimes it just it feels like it doesn't really resonate for people. And I really feel that, you know, for me in doing this work, like we are the instruments of our liberation. You know, our liberation isn't going to be any policy, it's not going to be any practice, it's us. So if we're not okay, if we can't show up and do this work, 
you know, with the level that it needs to be done. And, you know, just thinking about trauma again, you know, trauma disrupts our brains. It disrupts our ability to think. It disrupts our ability to perceive reality. Trauma disrupts, like, every bodily function. So, yo, we need to show up. And if we're not taking care of ourselves, then we can't show up. So that's always a starting point for me, right? I can tell you about this theory, practice, whatever, all that shit is bullshit. If you're not okay, you can't show up, then none of that means anything. So like, yo, if we all want change, you know, we got to start practicing with ourselves. We got to be like, yo, how am I creating vulnerability with myself? How am I creating honesty with myself? How am I creating accountability with myself? How am I creating healing with myself? How am I creating grace with myself? You know, and if we don't start those practices with ourselves, it's really hard to do that with others. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that. And if someone wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm on social media a little bit, not a lot, um, at DocJ75. I, I need to, you know, be better with social media, especially considering, you know, the book is coming out. But I could definitely be reached on DocJ75. Twitter is usually, you know, the means I communicate with. Um, and you can also look me up on NYU, you know, um, Kirk J. James. And if you Google Kirk J. James NYU, uh, you'll be able to get my email. I'll give you my email too. Uh, it's a uh, short email is kaj3 at nyu.edu. And I'll say that again, kaj3 at nyu.edu. All right. Appreciate you. And yeah, thank you for, um, you know, blessing us with your present. Really um, happy and excited for this episode, man. Thank you. Yo, thank you, my brother. And, you know, I just want to say, man, I'm so proud of you and, you know, the work that you're doing. And, you know, you're such an example for so many people to, who, like, yo, I'm going to show up and I'm going to own my voice and I'm going to show up and, like, really own, you know, my potential for change. So I just want to say, man, thank you. I'm a fan. I'm always in the, you know, I'm always cheering for you, my brother. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review. Remember, you can connect and follow us on our social media pages to stay informed. Links will be provided in the episode notes. Thank you for tuning in. Remember this. This is the only podcast that speak facts. Amen.